Welcome to Street Smart Success, where real estate entrepreneurs share their backgrounds, experience, and lessons learned. This is Roger Becker, your host. Learn with me as I drill down with guests about their paths to success and what they're doing now. Christopher, Chris Stout. Welcome to Street Smart Success. Thanks for having me. You got it. So, so Chris, you're uh, you're near uh, Rumson, New Jersey. Um, a very cool place, and other uh, cool places on the on the Jersey Shore. Where does the Chris Stout story start, and what what did Chris Stout do prior to real estate? The Chris Stout story starts in Staten Island, New York. That's where I started my building and remodeling company. So. Uh, the number one thing for me at the time was to to build homes, renovate. And my story starts in Staten Island, New York. I started a company that built build and remodeled houses in the area. So I did everything I could to make sure I made enough money to be able to buy rental real estate. So everything I could possibly put aside above my basic living expenses was all put into investment properties. I lived a very modest life. I did everything I could to save and literally everything I could, I put into one place. So that one place was real estate. And it started with two family homes in the area and basically just was stacking two family houses as much as I possibly can and continued actually growing that renovation company to become a custom home building slash spec building company. When we started spec building, I was using past client relationships to invest in the spec building world. So spec building is a very capital intensive business and you either need a lot of capital or investors. So I was able to use past clients as investors to make that business possible. And all at this time I was building, I was, I was buying apartments. So with apartments, you have to understand that it's long, kind of drawn out type investing. So there's real no windfall overnight. There's no windfall in six months, eight months, typically even a year. It's very little, you know, very little type. You know, it takes a long time to make money with apartments. So I put my life into a couple buckets. Remodeling apartments and new construction, and I wanted to know, I wanted to know which one makes the most amount of money and which one takes takes the most amount of time, and really kind of judge them based upon that. The renovation company took the most amount of time. The new home building took the medium, you know, it, it was the middle, and the apartments took significantly less time and made the most amount of money over a longer period of time. So I needed the first two to kind of get going, but. But now that I'm kind of like off and running and I have my apartment, call it my apartment degree, I took that apartment degree and made a business that does it only for a living. So now we continually only do apartment deals and we bring outside investors along for the ride. So you're not building homes or renovating homes anymore? No. So we're not renovating anymore. Um, I actually gave that business to my foreman. So I do help him with some back end stuff. But for the most part, I'm out of that business. Uh, I do still have a pipeline of land that I currently own that we're able to still build on. Um, so that will 
operate in the background, but my number one focus is apartments. And, uh, you know, Stout Cap is on the front of our docket. That's all we do all day long. Okay. And then uh, are they all in Staten Island or where are these properties? Uh, so we buy in Northern Alabama, Northwest Arkansas, and North Carolina are where all our properties are. I still have a portfolio of houses in New York, but, um, or I, I should say, well, some houses, some, I have one industrial piece. So I basically have some pieces in Staten Island that I owned entirely by myself that's within New York City. But I don't bring outside investors into stuff in New York simply because, you know, we can't control it as well as we can out of state stuff. You said, Chris, that, you know, the, the apartment building is kind of like a, you make a lot of money, but it takes a, a lot of time. Uh, I mean, being in Staten Island, it, had I known you earlier, I would have said get into the garbage collection business. Yeah. Uh, sanitation? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, I, I actually, believe it or not, I always wanted to get into, I always wanted roll-offs. I don't know why. I always wanted roll-offs. And I, I, there was a part of me that wanted to get into the garbage collection business and I didn't. So, yeah, we passed that. <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway, thanks for, for bearing with my inanity. And so how did you wind up like in Northwest Arkansas and Northern Alabama of all places? And then are you the operator or do you invest with, uh, you know, uh, uh, other GPs that are operators and you put together partnerships or what, what does all that look like? And what is the window of time that you started investing out of state out of New York? So North, Northern Alabama is the Huntsville area. So anyone really in apartment investing knows the Huntsville area. Huntsville saw a tremendous amount of growth and seeing, is seeing a tremendous amount of growth and was really the, uh, really one of the quiet markets through the recent storm of real estate transactions. A lot of people knew of Huntsville. So we grabbed something right outside of Huntsville in Decatur, Alabama. That deal is performing very well. It's still, it's still an extremely affordable place to live. Uh, so, you know, we, we've, we've found pretty good success with that. The problem in that area is so saturated with investors, it's very difficult to get, very difficult to get another community there. Uh, so, uh, North, Northwest Arkansas, which we're very focused on right now. How did I learn about it? I learned about it two years ago in NMHC. National Multifamily Housing Council meeting in Vegas. And just a lot of people were talking about it. And I started looking into it. And basically, Northwest Arkansas has the, has the same feel as Austin. A tremendous amount of large Fortune 500 companies going there. We, there's, a surrounding of, there's a surrounding of topography surrounding the area. So it's, it's going to be condensed. There's only going to be so far that it's going to be able to grow. The unemployment is about 3%, approaching 2%. The apartment vacancy is sub 5%. And the amount of jobs coming to the area outpaced the amount of housing that's getting built. We do not have a problem of new construction coming and flooding the area. So we're basically in a, we're, we're in a spot where we're able to know that we're going to have a product that's going to be in demand for the foreseeable future. I mean, the demand there is just insane. We currently own 56 units there, which is smaller than we would typically get involved with. But uh, following it up with this immediate 48-unit deal that we have open for investment now, we'll be over the 100 mark, which is where we want to be in a new market. 
the 56 that you have, how many is that uh, one building or is that compiled from a number of buildings? It's so we buy multi, so we buy, uh, we buy communities. So we typically don't buy units spread out amongst an area. So it's one garden style apartment community. Within the community, there's eight separate buildings, but it is one apartment complex. So we're talking about the 56 unit one. I, that's what I was asking about. What's, what's the vintage? When was it built? And, and what, uh, what kind of cap rate going in or you know, what did the numbers you know, look like that made you want to buy it? So the vintage is 2001 and the buying cap rate, uh, I'm not entirely sure. So a lot of people ask me, what are you buying stuff at? What cap rate are you buying stuff at? We don't really look at that, believe it or not. So, like the, the 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 community that we're buying now, we're actually buying it at a three cap. And there's a lot of word on the street or people I hear talking about it. They're like, "Oh, Stout's overpaying." Like, no, we're not overpaying because we know where it's going to be in six months from now. So we're buying an apartment community that has month to month leases on all 48 of them. And the rents are half of what they need to be. So rents are currently 600 bucks. We know all day long they're between 12 and 1250 market rate. We, we are of the belief that if we could work for six months for free and then we built a cash register that's going to last as long as we want it to, we're perfectly okay doing that. So sometimes people are overly focused on what they're paying today and not what, what they, what could they get the, I should say, what could they get the property to in 12 months? So buy-in cap rates aren't the most important thing to us. Sale cap rates are important to us because we know other people look at them. And when we sell it, it's going to be a fully stabilized asset. So what could we sell it for? So, okay, so now we're saying we're going to be able to sell this stuff between a six and a six and a half cap. And we want to make sure that there's a path for us to positive leverage. So as long as we could be positively leveraged within the first 12 months of an asset and then grow it from there, that's a good buy for us because uh, we're not buying class A stabilized. If we're buying class A stabilized, then cap rate has a lot more to do with it because there's not much movement that's going to happen in the first couple of years of ownership. You're kind of buying it, maybe optimizing a little bit. And when was that built, the 48 unit? That was built in the 90s. Okay. So, you know, yeah, you're we not don't buy anything terribly old. Yeah, no kidding. Um, and then how much per door? Uh, the one that we're closing on, the one that we're raising for right now is 122000 a door. Um, we're buying it for $5.9 million. And we just got the appraisal back yesterday, which we usually don't get. But I think we were caught on an email chain that made us privy to it. The as-is value is $6.3 And the stabilized value, which we know we'll have, this, we know we'll have it stabilized in the first six to eight months, $7.95 So. We're buying something that's undervalued, that's, that's basic, that would be considered expensive to what the finance is doing today, but stabilized, it's worth $2 million more. So we're willing to work a little bit for, for six months to make sure that we can make $2 bucks for us and our investors. And are, are, are you saying across the, all the units, it's 600 bucks, or is that the average or some less and some higher? Like what, what does that look like? It's basically, it's basically that. And we're, we're, like there'd be a variation from unit to unit for a couple dollars, but that's basically it. I see. And how long had the previous owner owned it 
And then really what I'm trying to figure out is why why are they so far under market? Uh, so the previous owner, so you know, I've said this, a 48-unit deal, a $5 million, $10 million, $20 million deal is either the biggest thing you have going on in your life or the smallest thing. So what we've seen is these undervalued apartment buildings that we're buying. We're buying them off market, usually direct to seller. We've been buying them from people that it's the smallest thing going on in their life. So typically when someone owns something for 20, 25 years, their basis is so low that they're not really focusing on making more money at something they're already making money at. Because people only have so much bandwidth. So if something's working, you know, they kind of just let it go. And we've proved this over and over and over that we're able to do this. You know, because there's a lot of people who are like, I just can't understand why he wouldn't do it. Why wouldn't he do it? And the answer is, is I don't, I don't know. There's no other explanation I have other than what I just said. So, you know, the, the one we just purchased, 56 units, the rents were also 700-ish. And, you know, we met the seller on site and he's like, you know, I think you're maxed out at 800 gear. And we're like, nah, I don't, I don't think that's right. We didn't say that to him, but we went for it and we're getting renewals at 1100. Okay. Let's talk about the 56 unit one. What's that like getting somebody from 600 to 1100? How many stay? And, you know, like, like what's the process of that? So it really depends on the market. So we have a bunch of units scattered throughout the country. And I can tell you, like in an area like this, the process is the first process is they get upset. And then after being upset, then there's acceptance. So they then accept that, well, this is just how it is. And I looked in the market surrounding me and there's no place to get a better apartment for less or the same of what I'm paying now. So then it's, do I want to move out of the area or do I want to move to some random shithole somewhere in the, <laughs> within this area? And and really the answer is, well, I'm, I'd rather just stay because if I have to move and pay the same amount. So the only people we lose who are like, we're on the cusp of moving anyway. And we kind of just help them along the way. I see. And then are, are these typically, what's the mix? Are they ones? They twos? They, they, there's some threes? All twos. All twos. All twos. Yeah. Very, very interesting. How long does it take to get on average the 1100 a month for the whole, you know, to get yeah. Well, typically it takes 12 months because we have to make sure that they, we have to make sure that they recycle through all the leases and the 12 month leases. So we need 12 months to, 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 to cycle through all the leases. This particular apartment community, they're all month to month. So uh, with them being all month to month, we could, we could go in and do what we got to do immediately. How, and how long does it take uh, to fill these when they go vacant? Uh, the market is in such demand that it's almost immediate. Almost immediate. And how much yeah. do you put in per door? This one, very little, if any. Wow. Maybe five, four or five thousand bucks at like the high side. Good for you. Um, yeah. What kind of debt are you getting on them? Uh, so this one, we're, we're going in with a bridge debt. We're going in with bridge debt. And typically we're buying from Aetna. So we've had two major lenders over the course of our career. It's, it's Aetna and uh, Bancorp. Bancorp does our bridge lending. Aetna does our perm financing. So Aetna is our, is our lender that if we're buying something, we need some money for CapEx. We're looking for fixed rate debt. We borrow from Aetna. And uh, for the bridge lending, Bancorp would be 
And and this so this debt we're going in, we're buying with Bancorp bridge debt. And how, how what's the term on the bridge debt? Uh, the term is three year fixed. It's a five year loan. We plan to be out of it by month eighteen or so. So wow. So that's your deal, Chris. So you is that pretty much across the spectrum of what you've done, where you're you you see heavy value add, mostly managerial, you know, managerial inefficiency as opposed to you know systems, and you just you get them stabilized and sell them. Yeah, that's it. Well, yeah, we then we keep them. So it's one or the other. So so you're so it's it's not all flipping for lack of a better term. Some of them you keep. There's no flipping. I'm sorry, did I say that we flip? No, well, I'm confused. Oh. So you you said you'll your plan is to be in and out of this thing in 18 months. The loan. Ah, sorry. Okay. No, no, no. My 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 bad. Okay. I understand yeah. that. And so look. Even if rates continue, if rates go up another, you know, two points, you've got so much meat on the bone that that wouldn't be ideal. But you're not going to be uh, without a seat at the table. I mean, you'll just it'll just it'll just uh, affect the NOI a little bit, or not the NOI, the cash flow. But you'll still be standing. And if you get lucky, the rates come down, and it's a grand slam. That's right. Absolutely right. Yeah. Okay. I look, man. I I think I get it. And then, where are you in North Carolina? Uh, Fayetteville. Okay. So Fayetteville, North Carolina is just south of Raleigh. Big military town. How far, to take a half a step back, how far is Decatur from uh, Huntsville? It's just west of Huntsville. So it probably, it's like 15, 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's really close. I'm just yeah. imagining these poor people, these poor Southerners, Seeing the guy from from Jersey come down and 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 rock their world, yeah, you know it's the markets that they live in. You know, there's there's, and and I hear you, but it it is the markets that they live in. So there are there are less expensive places to live, and if it's not us, it's going to be someone else. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm just, I'm I'm just I'm making light of it. Yeah, um, no, make- I hear you, and I think about it. Trust me. You know, I, I think about it, but but really, you know, almost any business or anything in this country, we have a product and we want to make it as best we can so we can sell it for as much as we can. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't have to convince me. I'm more talking to the to the to the viewers or the listeners of, you know, sometimes you'll see you'll see the 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 hate fire on social media or online of these landlords that you know, ruin areas. And it's just, it's not true, man. Like it's been like this since the beginning of the time in this country that if you want to live in a hot bustling area where there's a ton of work, there's a ton to do, there's opportunities for you to make money there. Housing costs a little bit more. So does everything else. If you want to live in an area where there's no work, nothing to do and no opportunity, well, it's significantly less expensive to live there. And that's your option. You know, do you want to go somewhere that has nothing going on and it's less? You could. You want to sh- you want to buy a Kia or a Bentley? Those two options are available to you. You know, almost every 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 market that exists. What uh, what are average incomes in those markets? Um, in Northwest Arkansas, it floats in the 60 k range. Got it. Um, and then you know, in a, in a- uh, so. so 
I'm sorry, specifically not Northwest Arkansas. Because if you go to go over to Bentonville, it jumps, which is the next town over. So we're happy that we're right next to Bentonville. Um, in our specific area, it's between sixty and seventy thousand. It seems to me like what you do, which is very, very, very simple, but you it, it seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong, your deal is you're very strategic about where you go. So yes. you're looking for the next town that hasn't happened yet. Yeah, without going crazy. Right. So we're not looking for the next town that hasn't happened yet that doesn't show signs of anything. <laughs> I so understand. some people like I want to invest here. I want like the next, like uh I I, I want the next, you know, rents are fifty bucks and all of a sudden they're twelve hundred. We're not looking for that. We're looking for areas that already made the turn. You know, I've heard it over and over and over, like, oh, this mayor came in and he said he's going to do this to this town or this governor came in and said he's going to do this for this town. They're like, dude, every politician says they're going to come in and they're going to crush the area and make it awesome. So it's, it's, it's important to know that when you go into an area, uh, don't tell me, show me. I want to see the growth happening already. I want to see the billions of dollars already spent. So I don't want to see we plan on doing this. I want to see we it started already. There's already money on the ground. Okay, now we'll invest here. Hmm. Very interesting. It makes a lot of sense. Everybody, everybody says A, B, or C is going to happen. Are you the the sole GP or or do you put you know you know, GP partnerships together, or is it you're the guy and you just raise retail money from retail investors? So right now, all of our deals are general partnered by Stout Cap. That's my company. So within my company, we have employees, but we are not co-GP'd. Actually, I'm sorry, on the Decatur deal, we're co-GP'd. Every deal outside of that is just Stout Cap. Uh, going forward, would I co-GP with people? Our goal and company model right now is to do deals on our own. If a good opportunity comes by, would I co-GP? Possibly depending on who was on the other side. And then what's the nature of the co-GP in, in, in Decatur? Like how did that even materialize and who does what and where are they and all that? So, so you know, with that deal, we wound up, we wound up pulling it into the infrastructure of Stoutcap. So Stoutcap basically operates the day-to-day on that deal. It was brought to us by a group who found it. And wanted to get it done. And the way that we were able to get it done was we got it done as a group. And then the, the operations management and distributions of all the funds happened through Stout Capsule Office. Just because it makes much more sense. We already have the infrastructure. We're already here doing it day to day, all that. So, you know, Koji being in the future would just be there, there would have to be distinct roles, um, which I know happens in Koji being. We just haven't focused on it much. You know, we focus on, you know, Growing our assets under management and growing internally as a company. Hmm. And then we want to build the machine here. How, how did they find you? Kind of like one of those things, like one thing led to another, past relationships. You know, hey, I think you guys could take this down. What do you think? You know, it was just very, it wasn't anything like, oh, so there's no direct answer, social media, this and that. It was just past, past relationships that got it done. I see. 
And then do you have a, uh, do you have a physical office where you are, where your employees come or is it virtual? Uh, so actually we're, we're in an, we're in a temporary office right now. They're building the office right next door to us. My marketing guy just ran next door and told them to turn off the air compressor while, while we were speaking because they're, they're nailing away. They're actually installing the shiplap on the wall. So they're building out the office for us now. So we have a hard location in Red Bank, New Jersey. Oh man, I've heard great things about Red Bank. Yeah, it's a great spot. Yeah. My, my brother-in-law says we should check that out because we're like yeah. weighing, like where do we wind up uh, right now in where we are empty nesters. Uh, and he said, you guys really like Red Bank. So that, that sounds absolutely super cool. How do you efficiently manage properties that size? One of the like common threads and refrains I hear from other sponsors is that, you know, you get so you get so much economies at 100, 120 units north. Frankly, could it, it then support somebody living on somebody living there, right? So how do you at, at a distance, how do you manage these things? It's it's all third party property management. So we have a very tight, we have a very tight onboarding process with our property managers. So we don't hire just anybody. And whenever taking anyone into consideration, we basically interview them like we're hiring them as an employee. And through doing that, we've wound up with a few very good property managers. And then all of our assets get weekly phone calls. And we monitor the deals from afar. And it's no different than monitoring something right here in New York or New Jersey, which I could probably tell you I visit my out-of-state properties more than I visit my properties here. In talking to you, I get the feeling you're a type A personality. Like, like that's the sense I get. So you don't get aggravated dealing with third-party property managers, especially when you're a guy that's that knows construction and renovation and you know systems and all that. You like you don't get aggravated. So I'll tell you the truth. I don't want to do anything. So I think Bill Gates said it once. Hire lazy people because they'll find out a better way to do something. So although I'll work 20 hours a day, I don't actually want to do anything myself. Which sounds kind of crazy and people are like, well, that doesn't sound good. Well, I do a lot, but I train my brain to not want to do anything. And my brother actually taught me this a while ago when I was doing construction. He said, when you show up to a job site, you have to act as if you don't know how to do anything. Because that kind of got me. When I started the construction company, I was the guy with the hammer and the pouch on. And the only way to grow out of that is to act as if you don't know how to do anything. So I've trained my brain to think that way. And the only way to handle stuff for me is through other people. So I push others to do what I need done. So if something isn't getting, getting done right, I don't get... The only thing I get frustrated at is my kids. <laughs> I don't read... Really, I don't get frustrated at anything else, truly, because my kids are probably my toughest negotiators. And uh, everyone who's listening that has kids could feel exactly what I'm saying. You know, other people, if things aren't happening the way you need them to, it's your fault. It's not theirs. So that's why I don't get frustrated. If something's not going right, I say to myself, what am I doing wrong that these people aren't doing their job properly? Because that means that I don't have the right person looking at it. Uh, I don't have the right company there. I don't have the right subcontractor there. I'm not talking to the right person. I'm not giving them accurate enough information. It always comes back to me. 
And that creates a life that I, I have no frustration in my life at all. Smart man. That, there's some wisdom. What would you say is the worst deal you've done? What'd you learn from it? Uh, flipping houses in Staten Island was my, was my least successful part of real estate. Um, and one specific deal, the worst I've ever done is make 10,000 on a deal that I put 400,000 out on. We thought we were going to make much more. And making 10,000, in reality, I probably broke even or lost money. But my lesson there was don't buy next to a hoarder because no one wants to buy your house. But uh, flipping houses and short term kind of gain focus for real estate is a bad place to be because, you know, real estate is a, is a long, real estate is, a, is set up to be very beneficial to be held. So, and even when you say held, it doesn't have to be held for, you know, 30, 40 years. It has to be just be held for a period of time where you're able to take advantage of some of the upside of the three things that real estate offers, which is cash flow appreciation and depreciation. You hold it for long enough to be able to take advantage of those for a little bit, optimize it, and then sell it. That's the sweet spot for real estate. So I don't think it's a good idea to keep stuff for 30 years. I don't think it's a good idea to flip in and out of stuff every six months. And because when you flip in and out of something every six months, you kind of take something that has low risk and you add a lot of risks to it. Because a lot of times, if you have to flip out of it in six months, you don't have a long-term goal of what happens if that can't happen. So I flipped homes and then stopped it and went, you know, continued my journey as, as, a, as a renter. Although arguably, I mean, I do some development. So development would be a, a slightly a different form of flipping. Because you're buying land, you're building on it, you're selling it. But the the one caveat to that is there's less unknowns because you're starting from scratch and you know you're starting from scratch. And then the other side of it is I'm building within a market that has no room for expansion in New York City. So, you know, the for sale market in New York City, if if the for sale market in New York City is struggling, everything is struggling. Yeah, exactly. It's one of those places that there's always a ton of money, a ton of people. People are always moving there. Where, where, yeah. where, where do you want to be uh, five years from now? Uh, five years from now, I'd, I'd like to be at a billion dollars assets under management. And where are you now? Uh, 50 million. Got it. That's a tall order. Okay, man. Well, look, how does one, Chris, get a hold of you if they want to invest, learn more about what you're doing? Uh, get on your email list, etc. So we have uh, our website, which is stoutcap.com, stoutcap.com. And you could hit me on Instagram. I'd appreciate a follow. Uh, official Stout. Got it. That's on Instagram. Chris, the name of the podcast, Lest You Forgotten, Street Smart Success. You are a street smart guy. And I've loved our conversation, man. Um, look, you, I, I very much uh, respect what you're doing. And uh, I will uh, circle back, uh, God willing, sometime next year and just check in with you and have another, another great conversation. Sounds good, man. Yeah. Thanks man. for having me, Roger. Talk to you soon. Talk to you.